Hey, everybody. Welcome to a very introspective episode of uh, Exhibit A, where I interview basically myself, or at least my brother from another mother, um, which will be made very clear as I read you Bobby's bio, because it is totally uh, up my alley. So Bobby's Harvard Law grad, which they call uh, Barry the Harvard of the South. I'm totally kidding uh, about that part. He's not your typical lawyer, obviously. Doesn't do suits. Hates legalese ESE as opposed to E-A-S-E. I hope not. I'll make the same bad joke that I made the first time we tried this. And he has a tendency to make bad pop culture references and dad jokes on the regular. Hence why I think we're going to along wonderfully and this will be a great episode. Uh, he, however, has built a thriving online business by doing things a little bit differently than other people. Sounds like us. But making the legal and business stuff simple with a focus on building real connections with real people instead of thinking of people as potential transactions. After trying all the secret strategies, all the expert online entrepreneurs are telling people to do, he threw out the online marketing rule book and started marketing his way by giving, connecting with his audience, building his brand. And nowadays he helps people with the legal stuff. Um, he also helps entrepreneurs build their own businesses using fundamental marketing concepts. He's here today to talk to us about email marketing that doesn't suck, a new book he has coming out. And Bobby, I am so happy to have you here. I'm excited to be here, Jordan. Uh, I don't know what happened the first time we tried this when, you know, <laughs> when all of a sudden I was just hearing static from you, but that was interesting. But, you know, it's working now. So there we go. Look, man, we are not here to talk about how we are experts in Google Meet and live streaming. So, you know, shit happens. We make it work. But yeah. ultimately, I got to I go back to I tell the story every time anything goes wrong. Um, so when COVID started, Gary V went to the daily Ask Gary V show. I don't know, whatever it was called. And like three weeks in, there's an episode where the audio feed cuts out for the other person. And as like the dude pe pe uh, preaches patience, nice, understanding, whatever, the way he handled that moment was a like proves to me that it's true. Because every 10 minutes, he's like, all right, we got this going. No, all right, have you guys tried this? No, okay, great. We'll keep going. You know, so-and-so just asked the question, blah, blah, blah. Here's the answer. And so like, I always think of that every time something goes wrong. Like we've had a guest show up upside down. We had the audio kick out and like, honestly, you know, shit happens and then we die really. Oh. And the less that you get aggravated between now and then, the more everything is fun. So I should just be on one of those, um, those old school things where I'm hanging from my ankle. So I'd be upside down. That, that'd be a better way to do the interview. What do you think? Well, and the crazy, so thankfully this person wasn't actually upside down. They were digitally upside down and somehow we fixed it. Or we, I say we, uh, my producer fixed it and flipped their whole screen. So nobody else had any idea. And I'm like screenshotting this. Like I'm talking to the person. They're like, it was, it was hilarious. Um, anyway, I'm super excited for us to chat about how email marketing that doesn't suck in the specifics, in the book. I want to talk about that. Uh, but I do want to talk about our last episode first. Our last episode of Exhibit A, we had Sonia Lacani on. Awesome episode, awesome person. The topic of that episode was different strokes, how to market to different audiences of lawyers and non-lawyers. Sonia does trademark for business owners and then also teaches other lawyers how to sell trademark services. So it's really cool to see that dichotomy in terms of different ideal clients, different marketing strategies, et cetera. But enough about that, Bobby, let's chat. I want to hear, like, tell me about the Harvard experience to go from that to not wearing a suit and email marketing doesn't suck and everything you're doing. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, really the, the Harvard experience was the outlier because I had, I grew up in deep South Texas, five miles from the Mexican border. I went to public schools all through school, college. I went to the university of Texas. So, I mean, that, you know, I was, 
you know, I was just a, a, a you know typical guy, although I was a bit different. I mean, I was in punk rock bands in college. That's what I did. That was the kind of thing I did. And then I go to law school. And, and when I went to law school, I, I was sure I was going to go to the ACLU or something like that. That was kind of my my dream job. Well, you know, then you get there and you start hearing about, you know, this was back in the heydays of, of I guess I graduated from law school in 2002. So when when these big law firms were like chasing after us and just wanting to throw money at us. And so like my first year summer, I worked at couple of firms in Texas. And during like a two and a half month period during the summer, I made more money than my mom made annually as a teacher. And so it's kind of like, huh, maybe I should do this. Well, so I did, but the problem was, I mean, I was trying to play a role that didn't fit me. I was trying to be a, you know, in the system, cog in the machine. And I was a litigator doing litigation that was like, you know, which, which of these two big companies is going to be a hundred million dollars richer, which again, I mean, you know, look, okay. I mean, companies got to do it. I, I understand it. Economics are economics, but it wasn't exactly what I love doing. So I think of that period more as, a, as kind of the, the, the detour off of what I probably should have been doing my, my whole life. Well, and I always like, look, I'm a big, uh, willing to admit, I feel like everybody has their price and like, I have a price. Yep it just gets progressively more expensive as either you make what you need to make or as you, mm -hmm. you know, figure out that you can make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, just interviewing people on social media <laughs> from a hotel room across the country. Like it's true. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was funny. I mean, but like my, my early career as a lawyer, I mean, there were, I, I mean, in a lot of ways it, it was, I would say the, the type of career that a lot of lawyers would be very jealous of. I mean, I, I, Clerked for a federal court of appeals judge on the Eighth Circuit. Then I was here in D.C. at a couple of uh, prestigious firms, one of which uh, th the lawyer who recruited me, who was my mentor originally, who was really kind of, you know, uh, taught me about litigation and trial court litigation. Because the first firm I'd been at, I was I was doing appellate work. So when he brought me over, it was this guy I called him Neil at the time. Now we'd have to call him Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. So, I mean, that was like the those are the kind of circles of, of stuff I was running and then I became an AUSA and was a federal prosecutor for three years. And so I got to do a lot of fun stuff, but none of it really fit because that's just not who I am. And, and so eventually I found myself and, and I'm glad I did, but you know, it, it, it's an, it been an interesting process. That's for sure. So I love, so we're talking about judges and I, to, to my lack of credit, I forgot the guy's name, but there's one judge. I don't remember what circuit, whatever level, um, who got like ragged on for not being, citing enough stuff so he did one opinion or a couple where he cited everything like the word the comes from ancient greek blah 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 meaning whatever just to be a jerk about it i was like that's like if i'm gonna fit in on writing like that would be my uh so, my style so so we didn't i mean and again we didn't we didn't do that but I, so i clerked for uh judge uh, richard arnold on the um you know on the eighth circuit so he was one of those people he was an old genteel southern gentleman he, he passed a couple years after i clerked for him but at some point, like he told us kind of like that. He's like, look, we don't have to cite stuff. We can say stuff. We're the court. You know, we, we can say things and it becomes the law. And, you know, you don't have to cite everything. And so it was an interesting time. But it's interesting when you say something like that, that, you know, there are people who think you have to cite for everything. But if you're a judge, why? I mean, you know, you get to decide. I mean, there's that old joke. What's the difference between God and a federal court judge? God doesn't think he's a federal court judge. <laughs> That uh, I haven't heard that one before, yeah. but yeah, makes sense. So what was so what was the impetus to I guess get back on track to go back to being you know the black sheep of Harvard Law or, or whatever you want to refer to yourself? 
so I mean, it was it was a long process. So after my stint as an AUSA, I was coming back. So I had gone to Fort Worth for that, and then I was coming back to DC where I live. Um, and I, I didn't know what to do. I had an offer to go back to the the prestigious firm I was at before, but the problem was I was still going to be, you know, whatever a cog in the machine. And instead, I joined this small entrepreneurial firm. It was a couple of guys uh, when I joined. I joined them, and I became the third person. They primarily did, were antitrust experts. Uh, that's what they had done. That was their, they'd been boys Schiller's type, uh, uh, had been their pedigree. So that's what they did. I didn't have any experience in that. I joined the firm shortly after I joined the firm, they had this little patent case, patent litigation case that they didn't know anything about patents, but somehow they'd gotten a patent case that came to life right after I joined the firm. And so they then basically, I said, well, I don't really know much about and I trust I said, okay, well, why don't you take care of this patent case? And so I just handled that. And it was me against one of the top, I mean, I don't know, one of the, the 10 biggest firms in the world on a patent case with me learning patent litigation. Oh, by the way, I hadn't taken anything about IP in law school either. So I was having to learn patent law, learn patent litigation, and figure this whole thing out while litigating against a team of 10 to 15 lawyers. And so it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I found my footing and I was enjoying it, except... Part of the problem was being a prosecutor had ruined me because when I was a federal prosecutor, and, and this makes no sense uh, in a lot of ways, but we got along much better with the defense attorneys, the defense attorneys and, and the prosecutors. We had a good working relationship, and I think it was because it was it was this community like we knew we were going to see each other again. So, you know, we had to build some collegiality and, and in big firm litigation that I was doing and even the, the small firm. You know, I think every lawyer knows, hey, what's the chance I'm ever going to see this this Yahoo again? So it's just complete scorched earth. I, we always call it the criminal attorneys are civil to each other and the civil attorneys are criminal to each other. Yeah. And, and I mean, it was just like, but the problem was all of a sudden I'm dealing with that and just like dealing with the acrimony and just the everything and fighting about every last thing got was, you know, was getting at me, you know, getting kind of old. But I was enjoying practicing for a while. Um, then I went on on my own, not because I wanted to, because, but because we'd done the stupid thing that entrepreneurs do when I joined that other firm, we didn't actually get a written agreement about how I would become a true partner in the firm. And so all of a sudden my wife got pregnant four years later and, and, you know, I'd been treated completely fairly up to that point. The problem was it was a contingency fee heavy firm where I'd go six months, eight months without a, without making anything. And I had no guaranteed upside. So, you know, if the firm hit big, I mean, I wasn't guaranteed anything. So I said, hey, we got to take care of this. And we couldn't come to an agreement. So I went and started my own firm in 2014. Um, and I was doing a lot of the same stuff. Uh, I was a, a solo attorney doing patent litigation, which is kind of a, <laughs> a weird idea when I look at it. But that was what I was doing. But I was in that. Eh. I was kind of in my late 30s with feelings of eh. I didn't know why, but I was just kind of eh call it a midlife crisis, call it whatever it was. I, I started working with a life coach and after about six months of talking about relationships and personal and all that stuff, she asked me if I liked what I did for a living. And it, and it was the first time I admitted that I didn't. Um, and, and the problem wasn't being a lawyer. Well, I, I jokingly say the problem with being a lawyer is you have to spend a lot of time with other lawyers, which, you know, not all lawyers are bad, but you know, it, it's part of it. But the real problem was I had chosen. Yeah, God doesn't think he's a lawyer either. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. To do your, so, I mean, part of it is like I, I had picked the worst possible kind of law being a litigator because I'm not a fighter by heart. Like, that's just not what I like to. I don't like fighting about stuff. I don't like arguing. Like, let me be clear. I like arguing about fun, deep, 
esoteric conversation. I mean, we could have a discussion about like legal stuff and just have these weird, interesting conversations. Heck, I could talk about beer and have all kinds of discussions and fights with people. I could talk music and have these kinds of, you know, fun. But the, the all the time fighting everything just had gotten under my skin. And so after I said I didn't like it, she said, okay, what are we going to do about that? And I said, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. Oh, I, I know. Could, I knew I wouldn't be talking to you, <laughs> you know, but... So she came up with the idea of saying, hey, I could see you. She actually said, you have a radio voice. So I could see you going on radio and podcasts and, and giving like lessons and, and advice. She used the word advice. We lawyers would say, I'm not giving you advice. I'm not giving you advice. But, you Important know, disclaimer, this is not legal advice. The yeah, facts exactly. are going to each case. Individual case are different. Yeah. yeah. But she was basically saying, go on to podcasts, go on to radio and give entrepreneurs advice about legal stuff. And I said, huh, that's interesting. I'll think about it. Well, by the, the next time I met with her, and we met every two weeks, I had hired a podcast booking agency to book me on 40 podcasts. I had no idea what it was going to be about, what my business was going to be. I, I was like, I don't know, but I, I'll figure it out. The funny thing, I look back at those things and like I was, the, the headshot I was sending out was I was still in a suit and I was in the lawyer post, you know, kind of in a halfway cocked sideways thing. And that's what I was doing back then, which is funny. Did, were you rolling a sleeve up? No, no. I mean, I always roll my okay. sleeves up, but no, in this, I didn't. In this, I had my full, you know, you know, full fancy, whatever it was, the headshot I had from a law firm or something, I think. But I was just like, oh, I'll just use this thing. And it, it's funny now because I'm like, Ugh. Um, but that's how it started. And that was back in 2017. And uh, it took me a while to find my footing. Uh, my first year, I, in this kind of side venture at that point, I, I lost $50,000. I spent 50 grand. Uh, on building the business, I made exactly one sale of an online course for 500 and, or maybe 620 something dollars. But the woman asked for a refund on day 29 of a 30 day, no questions asked refund policy. Uh, and so it was a down year, um, but it, it turned around to 2018 when I just kind of, that's when I threw out the rule book and said, I'm gonna do it my way and just started doing things that made sense. And, and since then, it's just been a lot of fun. I enjoy what I do for a living. I enjoy, um, you know, that I get to spend my time doing what I want to do when I want to do it. So th that's the the story of how I got to be where I am. So what was, what was the year that was negative 50 plus the refund? So it was 2017. Okay. So it was, so 2018. So it's, it's, it wasn't like you were dragging along for multiple years. No, no, it was one year. And, and, and again, I like at the end of 2017, I was, I mean, I was in the dumps because I was because I had kind of not gone all in, but I had I had stopped marketing in my firm. I'd stopped building stuff. I, I had had I'd gotten to the point that I had an associate working for me, but I had to let her go because I didn't have any work. And so I let her go. I don't know, say September, October. And then like all of a sudden this online business thing wasn't really working out. And I was like, oh, crap, what am I going to do now? Um, but it, I, I also say, you know, my my or my business, my fortune has all been other people's doing. And I was lucky that that year, New Year's Eve, so December 31st, 2017, was a Sunday. My in-laws were in town. And it, normally when my in-laws are in town, we didn't make it to church because we're too late. But somehow we, we happened to make it to church on New Year's Eve. And the pastor was talking about giving. And he was talking about the power of giving and how it changes you as a person, not anything else, not about anything else, but just saying it will change you. I said, huh, it's an interesting prospect. And so I made giving on the spot. I said, giving is my word of the year for 2018. And that was kind of the first major shift where I just said, you know what? I'm going to stop 
giving to get. I'm going to stop, you know, doing giving as a tactic. I'm just going to give because that feels good. And because I want to be a giver. And having that, already given $50,000 to bad marketing. Well, yeah. I mean, you've now committed intentionally to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's that, but you know, I just started doing things the right way, I think, but I mean, that really was a big shift. And so I, it really was in 2018, the first half. And, and, and I didn't really start making money in 2018 until April. Now, there were some fortuitous things that happened along the way. Uh, for anyone who's in the online world, or if you're a privacy expert, you might remember that in May of 2018, there was this thing called GDPR going into effect. And all the online entrepreneurs were freaking out. And I could understand why they were freaking out. They were freaking out because it was confusing. And not only was it confusing, but if you tried to understand it, the people trying to explain it to you were confusing. Like I went to some trainings and I was confused. I'm like, I'm a lawyer and I don't understand what the heck you're saying. How is a regular person going to understand this? So I got out the 200 page law. I read the whole thing. And then I put on some free training. And when I did, that was really what propelled me because I, I, I did that and I was in a group of a woman with a massive following uh, who has hundreds of thousands of people who follow her, listen to her stuff, et cetera. And she heard that I was doing this training for free. And she's like, wait, for free? I said, yeah, for free. And so she had me on our podcast to talk about GDPR because she'd been looking for a lawyer to talk about it. She had me on there. And at the time, she actually didn't send anybody to other people's opt-ins, but she made an exception with me because she said my training was so good and it was free. Whereas most lawyers were trying to say, give me 200 bucks for a checklist, which, you know, again, fine. But for most of these entrepreneurs it just made no sense. Right. And so that was, you know, again, that was like the first example of me giving turning into something powerful. And I, I didn't give because I was expecting that, but unexpectedly the universe paid me back. And so I've kind of, you know, leaned into that and kept doing it. And I mean, I just, I want to uh, maybe push back is the wrong word, but like, I think you're underselling some of this because like, ultimately this isn't just fortuitous. I mean, this is you yeah. looking at like, I'm a lawyer. I've got this background. This is something that makes sense to me and this following. Therefore, people will appreciate my take on the, the intersection of these things. Yep. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, so if, if you ever read the book, good to great by Jim Collins, one of the things he, he talks about level five leaders and he says, and people have pointed this out about me level five, like the top level leaders, they attribute success to luck because like, I look at, I'm like, how the heck did that happen? You know, but screw ups are my fault. Like it doesn't matter if a team did it. Screw up is my fault no matter what, but my success is luck in my team. And I've always thought that way. And I think that's part of the reason that I'm successful. And I think it's a shift that people can make where if you have that, that attitude and don't act, don't, don't assume that you're, you know, whatever, you know, the best thing since sliced bread, it will, it will pay off well because, you know, that way you just don't expect things and you do things and, and it does work out. But I mean, yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it's not luck. I mean, let's, I know it wasn't luck. I did the right thing. I was intuitively marketing the right way. I was intuitively building the right kind of business. I was intuitively serving my customers rather than trying to extract every last nickel, dime, penny from them right up front. Many of them didn't have money. And, and the funny thing is some of those people who first met me at that moment when I was doing those free things, became brand advocates before they bought anything from me. They didn't need my products yet. They, didn't, they weren't making money. So they didn't need my contracts yet that I sell. And kind of that's the business I was building was selling legal templates. But they knew this guy gives so much. He cares and he serves so much that they told all of their friends about it. And so guess what? I made a lot of money that way. 
and that continues to be the case. I mean, I, I do some marketing affirmatively, but my business, the legal template business, about 65% of the sales of our, our signature, what we call our template library, where they get all of my legal templates, those sales, 65% of them, we can't attribute to anything. I'm in a world where everybody wants funnels and, and to say, well, it's from this and that, and we can't. The first entry we have of them in our system is them buying our legal templates. Now, it could be they're using a different email address and they have, you know, a different one that's free. But I know what that is, is that I built brand equity, that people are telling them about me, that they've seen me, that they've interacted with me. And so they said, OK, hey, when I when I need legal templates, he's my guy. Right. And that's the kind of business that I built. And that's why it works. But again, I know I'm doing that and I have faith that it will work. I, I'm willing to take the leap of faith that that kind of marketing and treating people the right way will work out in the end. And, and here's a place where I am lucky. Okay. And this is not me, whatever. I'm lucky to have, to be the son of an entrepreneur, the son of a business owner who taught me how to do things right. My dad owned a chain of drugstores in deep South Texas when I was growing up. And he actually gave me this recently. You won't be able to really see it and read it, but it, it's this rock and it's from Stu Leonard. It's a grocery chain in, in the New York area. And, and he had this on his desk and I learned this from him early. It said our policy rule. Number one, the customer is always right. Rule number two, if the customer is ever wrong, reread rule number one. And so that's what I was learning as a business owner. In other words, your customer comes first, no matter what, no questions asked. There, there may be times where some people take advantage of you as a result, but you know what? Most people won't. And the, the goodwill that will come from that will outweigh any bad things that'll happen from people taking advantage of you. And so like that pure luck, I mean, I, I didn't do anything right for that to happen. It was simply that I learned from my father who by luck of birth happened to be someone who could teach me these things. And so I brought that into my online business and <laughs> I say I'm a, the most conventional rebel you'll ever meet, but I'm also like an analog marketer in a digital world. I'm building an online business that feels very much like I'm running a small general store in a small town. And, and so that's how it works. What? I want to dive into that a little bit deeper, yeah. but I do want to. So my two cents for yep. what it's worth on the customer is always right. I always tell people to focus on your ideal customer or your ideal client is always right. I think lawyers a lot of times get caught up in this, like that one a-hole they hated working with told them to do something differently and they change it and then realize that it only applied to that one a-hole that they didn't want right. to work with anyway. Um, that's my one pushback. Yeah. Well, and, and I want to be clear, like the customer is not always right. There, there's no question that there are customers who are wrong. Right. I mean, and that's not the idea behind this, but the idea behind it is that writ large kind of on a, on a larger scale, you should be thinking that, that, that I have to build a business around my customers. That's about serving them, not about serving me. Right. And, and sometimes that means I'm going to have to do things that I don't really like. And, and Again, for lawyers, it's different, but like I live in this world of online marketing where everybody wants to build an online course because they can, you know, it's passive income. They just create it once and they don't have to do anything, then they'll make all this money. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. The problem is that's not what your clients need. They don't need information. They need your help implementing. <laughs> and so because of that, it doesn't matter that you want to create an online course that will make you a lot of money. I'm like, hey, I want to make a gazillion dollars. Too bad. It's not going to happen. You know, you have to figure out how do you serve your customers? And you're right. I mean, don't make a change because you have some a-hole. I mean, you should always be looking to say, hey, are there people, are there clients I should fire? And, and look, I know as a lawyer, it's harder, but, but also are there red flags? I can think of these clients who there were red flags. 
back in my days where I took on these clients. I'm like, Oh, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, th there were those moments too, but you know, don't worry. Don't get fixated on that. The idea is simply have a service mindset and bring that to everything you do and things will tend to work out. And so I love you talk about the analog marketing and digital world. And really I go back to like Seth Godin's permission marketing. I don't know yep. if you've read the book. Okay. Yep. And like, Social media is totally the ultimate digital vehicle to do the analog face-to-face one-on-one contact that we did for uh, tens of thousands of years until the industrial revolution, really. Yeah. And the funny thing about it though, is if you think about it is, but people want, and people think that social media should work in a way where you don't have to do that. But I'm like, yeah, social media works when you make it social. When you have conversations, when you engage, not because you're posting stuff. I mean, posting stuff, whatever. I mean, you posting great, right? Do it, do it all you want. But that's not what will really be be kind of the powerful thing for social. Being the thing that is powerful for me, and and I built my online business the way it really like started to kind of blossom was I was just in groups where my ideal client was where other online business owners were. And I just provided value. I didn't pitch myself. I never pitched anything. I just helped. I answered questions. And so all of a sudden I built this reputation as Bobby is the legal guy for online course creators, for online business owners. And then they came to me, but it was because I was, you know, spending time there. But the funny thing is people thought like, you must spend all day, every day in, in these Facebook groups. I said, no. I just happen to be in like four or five where there's a lot of overlap and I'm conscious about being there for, for a certain period of time. So it seems like I'm everywhere because I'm in the exact same place as you are. And so you see my name over and over and over again. And again, I could do it. I, I was probably spending 30 minutes a day, but you know, I, I hear people complain about that. I'm like, well, if you're not willing to spend 30 minutes a day engaging with your ideal customers, good luck building a business. I mean, right. you will, but good luck. Well, and the other part of that is th what you're posting, that engagement, those answers live forever somewhere. Yeah. Like it's one thing to go, you know, it, it's funny. I talk to people, they're like, oh, I'm hundred percent networking driven. Cool. You can go and have 30 minutes of coffee or you can go on that social media for 30 minutes and have the same answers answered for a hundred people that's seen by a thousand people that gets you, you know, so much more than that conversation in the corner of a coffee shop. Yeah. And even that though, like, and that's the thing, like social has some power, but also like when you think about like social is better than an individual networking session. But the other thing I would tell people is, and this is what I push my people on is social media has a short shelf life, right? Yes. That information can be there and people can find it sometimes, but chances are people aren't going to find a, one of your posts on social media more depending on the social media LinkedIn a bit longer, but like on Instagram, someone's not going to see something if they don't see it in the first three to four days, most likely. So that's why I push people, Hey, you know, create some long form content, a blog, a, a YouTube show, a, a podcast, whatever it is, but do something. Cause that stuff does live on. Like I have people today who go download and, and I don't know what episode I'd be on in my podcast. I went away from episodic, but we're at somewhere around 300 and something. But I'll have people go back and listen to episode 43 and I'm just randomly picking a number, but they'll do that. And, you know, people continue to get value. And so that there is value in creating this content that lives on, that people can find, and that can just be your digital, you know, kind of digital ad that people can find 
and and it will do it will do a lot of work for you. Yeah, no, uh, Jim Hacking talks about being bingeable. You know, yeah. on Netflix, you want to go and binge the show. So, like for him, the whole his whole YouTube channel is built to be able to binge. Like you can sit there and watch, you know, 30, 40 hours of Jim talking about everything about immigration. And it's such a cool concept because he filmed those once. And I'm sure some of the stuff you refilm, you edit, you change things, things change, whatever. But like people have the opportunity to just bathe in your wisdom if they want to. Yeah. And so I, and that's the shift we made. I have a podcast and what I'm now doing is instead of episodic, we are doing nothing but series. So podcast series about a particular topic. And the first one I did was about email marketing and we release all the episodes at once. So make it bingeable because I'm like, why make people wait? Why put, you know, put it out, but it also allows me to think it through and teach it in a much more coherent way. And so that's what we're doing. Like the next one I'm going to be doing is about strategic thinking for business owners. And it'll probably end up being, somewhere around 10 hours of podcast episodes. I don't know how it'll be broken up, but all at once people will be able to binge it, pick the parts they want to listen to. Maybe, maybe they don't want to listen to me explain or talk about the blue ocean strategy and why I think it's kind of dumb, but you know, again, we can have those discussions and they'll be able to hear that all at once rather than, you know, just having to wait for the thing. And I like the idea of bingeable content as well. I love that. All right. So, I think at some point, now that we're at uh, past the halfway mark, we should probably talk about email marketing that doesn't suck. <laughs> but before that, is there anything else you want to make sure we cover? I mean, like, obviously, you and I could talk all day. I, I mean, again, I think we, 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 again, I don't know what I would say. There's a lot of things we could talk about. We could talk about all kinds of things. But no, I think, it's, I think we, it's, we're at a good point to go talk about email now. All right. So here's where I want to start this. Yeah. When you are talking about email marketing, like at the 10,000 foot view, or as Greg calls it, in the macro, mm -hmm. What are you talking about? So email marketing is, and again, let me reframe. When we were talking about that networking, the so, like kind of your ability to use social to network, to me, email marketing is exactly that. Email marketing is, in my view, the most powerful digital marketing tool we have to build the know, like, and trust factor with our potential customers. And the reasons are myriad there. There's, I mean, we can talk about a lot of things, but to me, fundamentally, it's because it is an unfiltered or largely unfiltered ability to communicate with people. There's not an algorithm that gets in the way. And, and it's not just that it's not an algorithm, but separately, I can control the messages that people get in the order they're going to get them in. I can take them on a journey and, and be intentional. Now, I can't guarantee they're going to open them all, right. but I can at least be thoughtful in how I send the messages where on social, even if I did that, even if I did like, you know, you know, topic one today, topic two tomorrow, topic three, the next day, I can't be sure that people are going to see it in that order. People might randomly see day seven first. Right. And so it's kind of weird. So that's part of it, but also it's that people it's permission based. People have raised their hand and said, yes, I want to hear from you. And so that's what makes it powerful. And it is this tool that allows you to connect with your audience. Now, email for most digital marketers was for a long time just thought of as a conversion tool. It was a conversion channel. It's how you sold. And I don't blame, you know, some people like, you know, the folks that you talk to, the folks I talk to who can kind of fall into that gap and say, well, that's what I should be doing with it. But if you think about it, if you get on Old Navy's email list, for example, you don't really want to connect with Old Navy. You want to know when they're having a discount, when they're having a sale. That, that's all you want out of them, right? So a lot of digital marketing, that's, what, that's where we've learned it from. 
But separately, the people who teach email marketing, at least in the world that I'm in, tend to be people who are conversion copywriters. That's how they're trained. They, they made their money early on by writing sales pages, writing sales copy for people. And they wanted to come up with a course that is scalable. And so they went into email. And that was the first place they started. So everyone with email is, it was teaching people to focus on, focus on getting a, getting a sale or getting a click or making, getting them to take some kind of action. One of the things that I did early on is I said, that's dumb. I, I mean, I'm more interested in connecting with my audience. And so I focus on connection first. And then when I do that, and this is the beauty of it is, is if you connect with your audience, when it is time, when they need you, they will buy from you. So again, you, you mentioned a trademark attorney who you, I think you had on uh, last week. Well, okay. If you have a trademark attorney, look, I mean, I'm a business owner. I'm going to need a trademark attorney. Guess what? I don't need a trademark attorney right now. But if I'm connected and I know you and you provide value to me, when I need a trademark, guess what? I'm just going to call you. I'm not going to call anybody else. And so there's value in doing that. Now, the struggle is you got to not be boring. Because if you're boring, no one's going to want to be on your email list. And so that's the other thing. And, and the other thing I, I think that was the, the magic to my success is I said, look, and this is different for, for if you're a lawyer necessarily, you know, practicing law. But, but when I was building my business, I'm selling legal templates to people and I'm trying to, to compete with noise from my clients. What they're hearing from the other digital marketers is I'll make you more money. Look, this person bought from me and they're making all this money. My testimonials were, they bought from me and nothing happened, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's my good result. So I knew that my emails had to at least be fun because nobody wants legal stuff. I mean, I don't know. We, we, we say that among friends, right? I mean, no one really wants it until hey, they really need it. Elon Musk, right? That was his, uh, his tweet storm a couple of days ago. He's looking right. for his street fighter attorneys. Right. I'm just saying. And so, so I kind of like had to figure out a way to do that. And, and I did it by just being me. But just saying, why don't I just show up as Bobby and start telling stories, let people get to know me. And then some, some people are like, whoa, this guy is not for me. He talks about beer too much for me. He drops a curse word here and there. Um, or, you know, he, he's talking about his zany antics. That's not what I want. Fine. Cool. Those people are left. See ya. Yeah. The, the people who stuck around, like, felt like they were my friends. The, the people, like, really feel like we are friends and so again, some of them will tell me, it's like, well, I don't need legal templates yet, but I, I don't, are there other people selling these? And I'm like, no, 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 no one, no one besides me is selling these things. I mean, obviously there are, there are plenty of people doing it, but right. the point is, my, my people don't even think that way. They're like, when I need them, I'm coming to you, Bobby. And so it creates this, this, you know, really great opportunity for me to do it. And I'm going to suggest that most lawyers could do the same thing. Now, you might not be as zany as Bobby because Bobby's really zany in his antics. I talk about things like, you know, seeing people do the walk of shame and those types of things in my email. But the point is still there that letting people get to know you and the real you will be one of the most powerful things to, to ultimately help them decide if they want to do business with you. So I want to flip this a little bit because like, look, if somebody's listening to you say this, let me actually, let me phrase it this way. If somebody has stuck with me long enough to still be here at this episode, they're probably somewhat similar to you and I from that perspective. So you talk about making, like having this connection, building this connection through the email. 
are there things that you are doing? Like, what, what are you getting from the reader's perspective? Like, are you asking them to engage with this stuff? If it's not, you know, hire this, buy this for me now. Like, what are some of the ways to keep them connected to you, not just you connecting to them with an email every so often? So the funny thing is like, I, I, what, here's what I found. When I ask them to hit reply, they're less likely to hit reply than when I don't. So what I do on a week in and week out basis, we use what, what I now, again, I, I should probably put a TM, you know, at the end of this, a, the, the super addictive story-based email framework, but it's really not that complicated. I have a hook, which is normally subject line. It's something curiosity get driven to get them to want to read the thing. I tell a story about my life. There is a lesson and then there's a call to action. But the call to action might just be, hey, go do this. Go implement this in your life. But what makes people reply is not the call to action. What makes people reply is the story. It's they connect with the story and they have to share that with me. They just feel compelled to. Like I, I one of the stories, one of my uh, classic stories was about uh, in high school, I was in debate and our coach made us at this one tournament we went to we always had to do other things like extemp where we would get up and give a you know persuasive or a, a a thought out speech about something on a topic you got in the last minute but at this one event one tournament there was an event i don't remember what it was called but it was supposed to be funny and organized but like you walked in you picked out these three different topics and you had to just choose one of them you had a minute to figure out what you were going to say and then you gave a five minute speech so one of the stories i tell is about that event where I pulled it. I don't remember what the other two were, but the, the, the topic that I stuck with was if you could give yourself any nickname, what would it be? And why I had no clue 30 minutes, 30 seconds in. I'm like, what the hell am I going to say? Then I look out and see my friend who had been razzing me about having a bit of a big head all day, like through the window. And I said, ha ha. So I get up and I, I, I say, if I can give myself any nickname, it would be Goey, G-O-E because it's one after God in the alphabet. And then I gave my three reasons. I'm good at everything. Talked about everything I was good at. Everybody loves me, blah, blah, blah. And at this point, the judge is like looking at me like, this is supposed to be funny, but I knew I was okay. And then so, so, and then I said, reason number three, I'm incredibly humble. When I said that he fell out of his chair laughing. So I tell this story in an email. Okay. And when I do it, I had multiple people email back and said, I had to do that same event. And it drove me nuts. For those people now, I'm not a random guy on the internet. I'm not the legal guy. I'm the guy who also did that same debate event as them. And so that's what it is. It's those stories and just letting people get to know me. But I mean, another thing we did, and, and I do ask people to respond. So we had a blog and a podcast and we were going to just try to combine them both. So we we're going to have a podcast and a blog. And so my team and I, we had been saying, but what do we call it? Is it, is it a blog? Is it a blog cast? We didn't even know. And so I sent an email and it was talking about the, the best sandwich ever. That was basically uh, it's Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner in a sandwich. And so I told that, and then I said, I need your help. Is it a plod or is it a blog cast or is it a plog? I think we're the ones we came down to. And that one people responded to because they couldn't help wanting to respond on those types of things. So I do ask questions in my audience, but most of the engagement comes just from people feeling compelled because they want to share. I had that in common with. All right. So then, so we've got some good examples. So now I want to flip it back to, we've got, uh, let's say 10 minutes. 
So what are the biggest mistakes people make when it comes to the email marketing? I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously we address the sell, 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 sell without any semblance of connection. I think that's the, I think that's the giant one, the the number one, but what are this, what are some of the others? What's the two through five? So the other, what is almost the opposite side, which is they're boring. And, And what I mean by that is, and again, so I'm for listeners, sorry, not sorry, but this may hit a bit close to home. They send a newsletter. Nobody wants a newsletter. Like seriously, nobody wants. Uh, and, and again, there are some rare exceptions, but for the most part, we don't want a summary of what's happening in your life, right? The, or of what's happening in your business, right? Which is what we get. And, and there's nothing wrong with a newsletter per se, but most newsletters are just dreadfully boring. And so because of that, that's kind of the, the fundamental problem. Similarly, if you are putting out weekly content of some sort, some people just say, oh, well, I'm just going to take my weekly content and I'm going to you know, regurgitate it in the email. That's not a good thing to do either. Because guess what? If they wanted to listen to your podcast, they'd listen to your podcast. If they want to read your blog, they'd read your blog. So you're just wasting an opportunity if that's what you're doing. The other thing is, is ghosting people. People will get folks on their list and then not email them forever until they have something to sell. If that happens, I mean, guess what? You know, people aren't going to stick around. People are going, who the heck is this? And why are they emailing me? And, and it will be confusing. So don't do that either. But another one, and, and, and I guess it's it's kind of, I guess, related to that is people mistakenly believe that other people don't want to get their emails. And so because of that, they they don't email often enough. And most people will appreciate, especially if you do email right, and, and make it enjoyable, they want to get your emails. And so emailing them every week is not a problem. Email your week, your list every, every week. One of the things I, I'm known to say is stay calm and send another email because that's what I do repeatedly. And every time when I'm in a promotion, for example, I've discovered that the more emails I send, the more money I make. It just every so, time it happens. So when you say don't do a newsletter, like the difference between the emails you're recommending and a newsletter is... The story. look, the format, the name, the story, the story. The okay. Story. So a newsletter, if you think about it, is like a summary of different events that have happened in the business or have happened recently. Okay. And, and again, there can be a place for that. If you're like someone like, and again, not law 360, but you get the point, like you're going to summarize important like developments that have come along that are not about you, but in the industry that could be useful. Okay. But fundamentally what you want to do is, is be and I'll use a pop culture reference here. You want to be more like friends in Seinfeld and less like national geographic because national geographic has its moments. Like I love one of my favorite shows is how the universe works, but I'll be honest with you. I can only watch so much of it. I can binge every Seinfeld episode like straight through and, and I'm doing it again, like for the third or fourth time within the last year. And, there's and there's just that few things on Netflix recently. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, but I think the point here is that there really is this notion that if you can like tell stories about your life, all of a sudden you become a character that your audience wants to hear about. They want it like my audience wants to hear what happened to Bobby this week. Like, it's like, I am there, you know, I'm like the, the TV show they want to watch. You, you can Kramer into their living room. Digitally. Exactly. And that's the power of it. Whereas if you're doing kind of this newsletter that is just a, you know, rundown of events, people are going to ignore it a lot of time because they're like, I don't need it now. Now I will also talk about formatting. People Wait, hold on. Have... Before you do that, I'm going to yeah. give you a game. As you rewatch Seinfeld for the whatever time, 
at the end of every episode, I want you to sit back and think if they had cell phones, how differently would this episode have been? Oh yeah. Like everyone. Which yeah, the whole show yeah. And to Larry David's credit, I think Kurt is hilarious with cell phones. But like yeah. on Seinfeld, it's there's so many life problems that are there's an app for that. Yeah, I mean it's it's so funny when like when you watch a show like that, and like if you watch it with like people who never lived without cell phones, they would not understand a lot of the humor in that. But I'm like, yeah, but you know, it, it's relatable. Yeah, that is definitely true. Um, okay, let's talk email format then, though. Yeah, people will t- say not you the person sending it people who are receiving will say they want pictures and formatting and pretty okay most people say that studies prove the opposite so hubspot did this study and hubspot if you guys don't know they're the the king of inbound marketing they're a great company who's come up with a lot of this stuff and although people say they want formatted they want pictures etc hubspot has found that across the board adding even one image Forget doing a a formatted newsletter. Adding just a single image will lower the open rate and the click-through rate. Why? We don't know, but it does. How does it even lower the open rate? Because you would have to open it to see the image. I suspect that it's largely because what happens is when you do that, you're more likely to go to the promotions tab. I think that's what's happening. Uh, Gotcha. Okay. But on the formatted piece, let's talk about the other thing. If you think about it, when you get an email and it's formatted, what does your brain automatically do? It says, this is a marketing email. Because I don't know about you, Jordan, but I don't do that when I'm emailing my friends. Of course, I don't email my friends anymore. But if I was, like, you know, I, I'm not going to format a template. No, I'm just going to send them an email. It's going to be plain text. And so that's why, especially in like the online world where I am, all of the thought leaders have figured this out. Like our emails, we're just plain text. That's all, that's all you're going to get from me. Now, but do, I, are I, you formatting like so I write so now I write everything as if I'm writing on LinkedIn, like one or two lines as paragraphs. And I do that. I've, I've realized not maybe unintentionally. I do that in my internal emails also. Yeah. So are you still like you're still formatting between lines? You're just yeah, talking yeah. about like nice, yeah. like uh, it doesn't look like a high school yearbook formatting. No, I know. I'm simply saying there's nothing other than text, but no, like gotcha. in the actual paragraph, like my cadence, I rarely have more than two sentences in a paragraph. I rarely have more than like it, it, in, I always, I write my emails in Google docs and I bring the, the margin over to five inches. So it's five inches wide is what I'm seeing. And if I get a paragraph that's longer than four lines long, I'm like, should I break that up? Just because a lot of gotcha. it helps the brain work, but no, okay. I'm just talking about like, you know, the pretty newsletter format that a lot of people have that has pictures and all that stuff in. And I always use American airlines as the example. I mean, it's fine. Right. But I, when I get something from America, my mind knows, Oh, that's a, that's a promo email. And you don't want that. Like you don't want your audience thinking that you want your audience to feel like they're getting an email from a friend. And so the more you can do just a plain text email, the better. Makes subtle sense. I love it. All right. We've got eight minutes. So you want to, anything else you want to talk about there or we want to start wrapping up? I mean, I think that's, that, that's the big stuff I would talk about. I mean, again, there's a lot of things you can think about, but, but ultimately the key is to, to think of email differently. And, and, and if you just think of email as a way to build a connection with people so that when they are ready to buy, they're going to buy from you, you'll be doing well. Yeah. I just, I, I go back to like, I love how you talked about it, the analog marketing and digital world, but like, it's so true. If you go back to like, I'm writing this email to John, blah, blah, blah. I'm writing this email to Jane, blah, blah, blah. Like this is the conversation that we're trying to have. And, you know, obviously they're going to read the whole email and then, or hopefully read it the whole thing and then hopefully respond for the conversation. 
but it makes it so much easier than this concept of like, I need to make something viral that goes to a hundred thousand people and they all remember me forever. And they all send me a million dollars worth of business and blah, 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 blah. That'll never happen. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause like, I'm, I will do like in this, in the online marketing world, a lot of people, and I don't do these anymore, but I used to be, take part in affiliate launches. So someone was going to launch a big program and, and various people with lists would promote it. And I would, anytime I did it, I would be on the leaderboard and I'm like, my active email list is only 6,000 people. I would be beating out people with lists of 50,000, 100,000, et cetera, because I focus on quantity or sorry, quality, quality. not quantity. I focus on having a deep connection with my people instead of saying, I'm just going to get everybody. And that way, like I'm talking to the right people. And instead of, and again, maybe this goes back to where we started with you saying, you know, that, that it's about your ideal customer. It's about your ideal person, not about everybody. Cause if you're trying to please everybody, you're going to please nobody. And right. so instead You'll- I focus on, Hey, who are my ideal people? How do I build this deep relationship and connection with them? And then, like I said, if you do that, the selling part is easy. And, and that's how I built it. And that's how I think we all should do it. And, and by the way, I think that's the old analog, you know, way of doing things. And it works pretty darn good. Totally. And, you know, and I think it's interesting. You talked about the being, being nothing to everyone or trying to be something to everybody. You know, your, your third or fourth favorite newsletter you unsubscribe from. So if you yeah. want to be that for everybody, you have zero subscribers. Exactly. You want that 6,000 people that, you know, you're the number one, one that they're looking forward to. Yep. All right. So I want to make sure. All right. So our next episode airs on May 30th. So next week, 145 Eastern time, we've got Deborah Wheatman on. Deborah's talking to us about how to create the right personal look. So how to write in the correct manner from your cover letter to your social media and beyond. So really cool conversation, actually jumping off what Bobby talked about, where we're so copywriting heavy. Um, Deborah will be joining us next week at 145 Eastern to discuss how to tie all those things together and have that consistency across your writing. So that being said, Bobby, I don't want to let you go without your final nugget of wisdom, your biggest takeaway, the most important thing to help other lawyers be as happy and successful and the exhibit A of a successful attorney like yourself. What would be that biggest piece of advice if they remember nothing from the 55 minutes of this show beforehand? So I I think my biggest piece of advice that I would give to people is never be afraid to, uh, to shift, to pivot, to make a change. Cause if, if I had been afraid and I was afraid, let's be honest. I mean, I was 15 years into my career after having spent, I don't know, quarter million dollars to get my law degree. And all of a sudden I'm going to make this big shift and stop practicing law. And right. I, I mean, I was doing like deep, heavy cutting edge type of litigation and, and now I sell legal templates, which again, I mean, it, it's not there's anything wrong, but it doesn't take a lot of my legal training you know, involved in that, right? And if I had been afraid of what people were going to say, of what my parents were going to say, of any of those things and had let that stop me, you know, I might've made more money in the last five years, but I would be profoundly unhappy. And I care more about happiness than I care about, you know, that and wealth ultimately isn't about your bank account alone. It's about your bank account, but also all of the other things and being willing to chase that. And again, for, for a lot of people that's within the law, great. But I just say, don't be afraid and don't feel like you have to stay because someone else might think something of you. If, if you chose a path that would actually lead you to happiness. I, 
from your from your lips to so many attorneys ears actually i i so there's a it's about a 4000 uh person facebook group that's all pretty lawyers in florida like 90% or so and i posted this like hey on a scale of 1 to 10 how happy are you being a lawyer right now and how happy were you a year ago as a lawyer and to be fair, there were way more positive comments than I expected from this, but there were a bunch of people that were like, where's the punchline to this joke? Like, you can't be happy as a lawyer. So, so be it. Yeah. All right. That being said, Bobby Clink, everybody, uh, email marketing that doesn't suck. Awesome person to talk to. Awesome book. Awesome newsletter to check out. And I love the, sorry, not newsletter, email. Because what I love about it is by getting on other people's emails over time, you really realize how your audience is going to respond to yours. Like it's one thing to get those first 10 can emails that are awesome. It's another thing to be reading like the 60th one and still be looking forward to 61 and 62 and 63. So thank you so much for joining us to everybody watching and listening. Hope to see you back on May 30th at 1:45 Eastern time for creating the right personal look from your cover letter to your social media and beyond. <laughs>